0: Hello. Welcome to the show. If you're new tuning in, welcome. And you might also want to take a look at some of the previous shows so you don't get some idea that I'm some raving anti Semite. Anyway, so today I'm going to be talking about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I personally think he's the biggest psychopath that ever ran this country, but that will be up to you to decide. That's just my opinion. I put this together in the last 24 hours, so I'm going to skip around a little bit. If that doesn't work for you, then Fair warning. Go ahead and just tune off. So anyhow, and I'm going to be doing it in two parts because surprise, surprise, FDR is a Jew. So we will be talking about that and why he made the famous quote about spreading out the Jews around the world. And there was also a very interesting deal back then with the Jews on a boat that were trying to get out of this country roaming around through Cuba The passports they got out of Germany. So that needs to come next. This is just too much for today for me to try to cover in one day. So let's get going here. And your comments are always welcome. Your support is desperately needed. I could do more if I had more support, but I'm doing what I can. Um, It's interesting because FDR started Social Security. I get social security. I get half of what they say the average person gets. So none of this is what it seems like it is, okay? So just be careful what information you're absorbing. So FDR, what does the D stand for besides death? <laughs> the name Delano is his middle name. It's a boy's name of French origin, meaning from the forest of nut trees. Popular President Franklin Delano Roosevelt inspired a brief fashion for this as a first name in the 1940s and almost never heard of today. Yeah, I've never heard of a kid named Delano. Um, So, Roosevelt is widely considered to be one of the most important figures in the history of the United States. Mm -hmm. So, from the Great Depression to World War II, President Franklin D. Roosevelt guided the United States through challenging times. I would argue that he created, but... He sought to help the American people in many different ways, including creating social social safety nets for the elderly and the unemployed. In 1935, FDR signed the Social Security Act to provide aid to the country's most senior citizens and others in need. (laughs) FDR considered the Social Security Act to be one of his greatest accomplishments. They've also robbed that fund by now, but anyway, so... In a 1934 speech to Congress, FDR said, I place the security of the men, women, and children of the nation first. Roosevelt believed that the American people deserved some safeguard against misfortunes, which cannot be wholly eliminated in this man-made world of ours. He accomplished this goal with the creation of Social Security. So... I will read some words, and at the end, we will play the theme song for FDR. This was his campaign song, and there's also a uh, very—I laugh pretty hard about how they came up with this song, but let me read a few of the words just to set the stage for who old FDR was, right? Happy days are here again. So long, sad times. Go long, bad times. We are rid of you at last. Howdy gay times, cloudy gray times. You are now a thing of the past. Happy days are here again. The skies above are clear again. Let's sing a song of cheer again. Happy days are, it's hard not to break out in song, but I'll spare you. Happy days are here again. All together, shout it now. There's no one who can doubt it now. So let's tell the world about it now. Happy days are here again. Your cares and troubles are gone. There'll be no more from now on. From now on, happy days are here again. The skies above are clear again. So let's sing a song of cheer again. Happy days, no, happy times, happy nights, happy days are here again. (laughs) FDR, often referred to by his initials FDR, born January 30th, 1882, right here in our 200 mark, right? He died April twelfth, nineteen forty-five. He was an American politician and attorney. Notice, they're all attorneys, right? Who served as the thirty-second president of the United States from nineteen thirty-three until his death in nineteen forty-five. FDR was a member of the Democratic Party. He won a record four presidential elections and became a central figure in world events the first half of the 20th century. Roosevelt directed the federal government during the Great Depression, implementing his New Deal domestic agenda in response to the worst economic crisis in U.S. history. As a dominant leader of his party, he built the New Deal Coalition, which defined modern liberalism in the United States throughout the Middle third of the 20th century his third and fourth terms were dominated by the second world war which ended shortly after he died in office last time any president went that many terms so he was born into the roosevelt family in hyde park new york graduated from both groton school and harvard college and attended columbia law school when he left after passing the bar exam to practice law in New York. In 1905, he married his fifth cousin, once removed, Eleanor Roosevelt. Interesting thing here, I'll insert about the laws, because um, if you've been following me for a while, I did point out that up until recently, transgender people were not legally able to marry. So evidently his little marriage to Eleanor wasn't even true, right? Just like um, it's interesting that... We've been going through, Andy and I have been going through photos, and it's interesting that we're finding this chin deal in more U.S. presidents. I suspect that almost every U.S. president, well, I know they're all transgender, but I suspect they're also, also Jews, but we'll get to that later. So, yeah, so he had a pretty established background. So him and Eleanor had six children. Where did they get those children from? Of whom five survived into adulthood. He won election to the New York State Senate in 1910, and then it gets interesting, and then served as Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President Woodrow Wilson during the First World War. I did a show about the U.S. Navy. The naval base in Norfolk, Virginia here happens to be the largest naval base in the entire world and just happens to be the home of the brand new NATO facility, the third one in the world, right here on U.S. shores. And, gee, not many people were really talking about it. wonder why that was. <laughs> Just like all the bases all through Africa. Hmm. Nobody really notices a lot of these things. So, um, anyway, so after he married his fifth cousin, Eleanor, supposedly, they had six children. Of course, they had six. Five survived in adulthood. He won election to the New York Senate in 1910, and he was under Woodrow Wilson. And he was a running mate before that, not a big deal. Anyway, so um, this is interesting because Roosevelt, in 1921, contracted a paralysis illness, believed at the time to be polio. Now, they said believed at the time to be polio, which kind of caught my attention. And his legs became permanently paralyzed. You do realize that with a lot of these hormone things, there's a lot of issues with the nervous system, so a little bit suspect here. While attempting to recover from his condition, Roosevelt found a polio rehabilitation center in Warm Springs, Georgia. Okay, Although unable to walk unaided, Roosevelt returned to public office after his election as governor of New York in 1928. He served as governor from 1929 to 1933, promoting programs to combat the economic crisis besetting the United States. Funny now, now they're doing the same thing again. Gee, it sounds so familiar to me. you know all this all this new stuff,' this new construction things. <laughs> they really haven't built any new roads since what's a hundred years or so ago. so anyway, so um Roosevelt got elected the second time, and he actually received more votes than any other candidate in the past hundred years. I learned a new word too today. I'll teach you the new word it's called philatic. P H I L A T E L I C. You're probably gonna think I'm saying something about phallus, it's right, no. <laughs> Roosevelt was an avid stamp collector. He was introduced into the American Philatic Society Hall of Fame in nineteen forty-five. So philatic also means stamp collectors. So anyway, so he died in nineteen forty-five at that warm springs place of cerebral hemorrhages. Okay. Let's look at some of his nicknames. Houdini in the White House. The Squire of Hyde Park. I read this one at first. I I thought it read the Squirrel of Hyde Park. Park. Uh, A really good one, the Sphinx. S-P-H-I-N-X. What does a Sphinx mean? Well, funny you should ask. It's a mystical creature with a head of a human, a falcon, a cat, or a sheep, and the body of a lion with the wings of a falcon. If you're not totally confused, join me. I'm totally confused. In Greek tradition, the sphinx has the head of a woman, the haunches of a lion, and the wings of a bird. She is mythicized as treacherous and merciless, and will kill and eat those who cannot answer her riddle. This deadly version of a sphinx appears in the myth and drama of (laughs) Odinus. Defus, you know, that O E D I P U S. You know, that Greek drama. Unlike the Greek Sphinx, which was a woman, the Egyptian Sphinx is typically shown as a man. In addition, the Egyptian Sphinx was viewed as benevolent, but having a ferocious strength similar to the benevolent Greek version. Both were thought of as guardians and often flanked the temp- and they often flank the entrances to temples. Well you know all those fake temples right <laughs> we all understand this Egyptian stuff was fake um, there may be some truth in the Egyptian stuff but let's just consider it fake for right now okay it's a sell us money and trinkets in Europe decorative art the Sphinx enjoyed a major revival during the Renaissance later the Sphinx image initially initially very similar to the original ancient Egyptian concept was exported to many other cultures albeit they're often interpreted quite differently due to translations. Okay. So Sphinx de- de- depictions are generally associated with arche- archaeological structures such as royal tombs or religious temples. Temples, okay. I have a show coming up also about the pastors. They did a fascinating thing in this country with pastors. They actually, was it a, a, well, I won't spoil the, the, the storyline here because I've been thinking for a very long time is how is this baby distribution working okay there aren't hospitals in every town right so who is setting up the deal with the babies well the pastors I think because they did this interesting thing with the pastors all these men of God getting everybody to pray to their fake Jesus which is probably praying to Satan but anyway let me not get distracted here so he, his father was, when he was born, very exclusive part of New York, he uh, he already had a, his father already had a grown son named Rosie, and it was, his family was very wealthy, surprise, surprise. They didn't make him poor in this backstory, but, because remember, we needed a Harvard man <laughs> to guide us through all this. His family was very wealthy, and FDR had a very privileged upbringing with trips to Europe, And private tutors. So Sarah Roosevelt, his mother, was a loving but domineering and overprotective mother. FDR was a devoted son but found clever and subtle ways to get around his mother's domination. At 14 he was sent to Groton, an exclusive prep school led by the Reverend Endicott Peabody. FDR did not enjoy his time at Groton often being teased by the other kids for having a formal and stuffy manner. (laughs) Since he had a nephew who was older than him, kids at Groton called him Uncle Frank. He graduated from Groton in 1900 and went to Harvard, where he edited the Crimson, but failed to be accepted into the Porcelain Social Club. I don't know why they throw this stuff in, but whatever. He graduated Harvard in 1903. Soon after, he fell madly in love with his sixth cousin. I already talked about that. But they said, "Howard, from the start, Franklin Eleanor's marriage was not a happy one. (laughs) Maybe he should have held out for somebody. Anyway, she was quiet and shy, whereas he was boisterous and outgoing. The fact that his mother moved into the house next door to theirs and ran things did not help. Franklin and Eleanor, they had six children. Okay, one died in infancy. Okay. Okay, he made a name for himself as a crusading reformer who favored the average guy. Let that sink in. Over big business and championed for honest government. In 1913, he was appointed assistant secretary of the Navy. Okay. Um, then in 1918, this is where it gets interesting, they always have affairs and stuff, I guess to make us believe that they're in this sex they show us, right? So in 1918, he be- he began a love affair with his wife's social secretary, Lucy Mercer. When Eleanor discovered the affair, she was understandably de- devastated and told Franklin she wanted a divorce. At the urging of his mother, Franklin chose to save the marriage and promised Eleanor that he would not have any more affairs. So he said he would have nothing more to do with Lucy. The damage was done, however, and Eleanor and Franklin never again shared the intimacies of marriage becoming like more political partners. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, I've watched all these documentaries. There's a couple of them about his affair with this Lucy person, and it went on for, well, allegedly the entire time. I, I don't think that he really quit or it really even happened. But anyway, so then um, in 1921 was when he was supposedly stricken with polio and paralyzed. He permanently lost a use. But see, back then, a lot of people didn't know this because there weren't cameras all over the place. So most of the public was not aware that he was actually paralyzed. And if you look at old shots, you can see how they cleverly kind of tried to cover it up. Well, but this is all staged, so whatever. So he permanently lost both of his legs in 1920, the use of his legs, but refused to let that thwart his political ambitions. He spoke at the 1924 Democratic Convention for the candidacy of Alfred E. Smith, then the governor of New York, calling him the Happy Warrior. In 1928, FDR was elected governor of New York and was (laughs) well-placed. I'll have to read this again. I'm sorry. I said I wasn't going to laugh at this stuff. It's just like, really? How plotted was all this stuff, right? Okay. In 1928, FDR was elected governor of New York and was well-placed when the stock market crashed in 1929. Yeah, I bet he was, right? As Governor, he took the lead in providing relief and public works projects for the millions of unemployed in the state. Always oh, a good guy, right? His success as New York Governor made him a strong candidate for the presidency in nineteen thirty two He easily beat incumbent president Herbert Hoover Hoover damn right so the war in Europe bro- broke out in August of 1914. This was First World War, okay? World War I. Recognizing the historic moment, FDR wrote his wife Eleanor, These are historic-making days. It will be the greatest war in the world's history. From the start, FDR worked to prepare the Navy for the coming war and was troubled that others did not see it his way because he was all in there right before in between world war one with his Navy position and then president for world war two. Funny how that all worked out, right? So, um, so FDR was frustrated with the Navy and he looked to politics enticed by an open Senate seat in his home state of New York. So he became um in the end he kept his job as assistant secretary of the Navy and many agreed in the years to come he was the exact right person for the job. So he stayed in running the Navy and didn't do all this other stuff. But there's millions of things I mean they wrote a million books about these things become cash cows and also become arguing points between everybody. So if you find out something different that's interesting, please just let me know. Okay. With the war we're talking about World War One here. With the war in Europe underway, FDR continued to agitate for greater action on the part of the Navy and sometimes found himself out of step with the administration, although FDR quickly learned to better manage his position with his boss and President Wilson. Only in late 1915 did the United States invest in a $600 million program to upgrade and expand the Navy. His um, favorite song was Anchors Away. As the months ticked by and the war became inevitable, FDR's focus on preparedness began to more closely resemble reality. This is preparedness for World War I. In 1917, German U-boats began unrestricted warfare on the oceans, compelling Wilson to go to Congress for a declaration of war. Congress obliged, and on April 16, 1917, the um, the U-boats sank a bunch of Allied ships. those U-boats are pretty interesting. There's documentaries on that. They were just quicker and faster. They were able to challenge the big, bold ships with these little tiny boats. But anyway, so how much that's true? I don't know. I wouldn't. I, I think the U-boats might have been true because I think it was pretty clever. Those U-boats really nailed a lot of people. So, so once at war, FDA. FDR, excuse me, <laughs> FDA, right, said about stopping the U-boat menace, advocating for vast anti-submarine minefields in the North Sea. Well, quite a reaction, huh? Let's well, stop those little U-boats, which really, they were basically, the U-boats were just a couple people in a boat, right? And the U.S. had all these huge naval ships. So the U-boats were actually quite clever because they would just dart in and out, okay? They would they'd lurk around at nighttime with their lights off. And supposedly the U-boats were heavily involved during D-Day because they were actually able to sabotage them. So the U-boats would do clever things like hang out with their lights off, just a few people in this little boat, and then just rev up and <laughs> challenge the big boats. <laughs> probably got ticked. If it was real, if the U-boats were real, probably being challenged by them, had to tick them off with all these big Navy ships, right? So, um, and this is quite a, when you, when you understand the U-boat, to actually want to set up minefields to stop them is a pretty drastic reaction, right? They could have easily just popped off those U boat drivers with some <laughs> from the deck of their ships if they'd been paying attention and noticed them out there lurking around with their lights off. <laughs> but, but no, their response was to set up minefields. So by February 1918, 100,000 mines were ready to be deployed. Although the war ended before the system could be fully tested, The minefield is thought to have destroyed at least four (laughs) U-boats. Pretty big reaction to a few boats, but anyway, so. Because remember, the U.S. had the huge ships. These U-boats were really tiny. Look them up. They are very, very tiny. So, cousin Theodore Roosevelt had urged FDR to get into uniform and join the war effort. So, but FDR was far too more, far too valuable. This is before the paralysis hit in, okay. He was far too valuable in his position in Washington, although he did as a civilian. In the summer of 1918, FDR went overseas to visit France, meet with French officials, and see the front for himself. At one point, he was within a mile of the German lines, close enough to hear a German artillery shell pass overhead. The experience stayed with him the rest of his life. In 1936, FDR... Oh, FDR revealed his experience. It's always funny how you can reveal these stories later, right? His experience while defending his stance to keep Americans out of another European war. Yeah, see, remember, it's always a cage act, right? It's like, no, 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 no. This guy doesn't want us to go to war. So let's set up a scenario so that everybody can be drugged into war against his will, right? Because he was a champion of the little guy. Get all those little guys like my father shipped off to war. So, um, how he got this polio supposedly is kind of interesting. I don't believe it, just like I don't believe the, they, they inherit those chins. I believe it has to do with hormones, but believing and thinking is not research. So, I'm just telling you where I am right now with this. So, um, he, this is a very significant thing that he said, which shows the true psycho in him. He said, I have seen war. I have seen war on land and sea. I have seen blood running from the wounded. I have seen men coughing from their gassed lungs. I have seen the dead in the mine, in the mud. I have seen cities destroyed. I have seen two hundred limping, exhausted men come out of the line, the survivors of a regiment of one thousand that went forward forty eight hours before. I have seen children starving I have seen the agony of mothers and wives. I hate war. Well, those were his words, not mine. But I I don't hate anything, okay, to be very clear here. That's their game. I don't see any purpose for war, but that's also their game. So I think when we start to hate them, then we become them, okay? So it's a very thin line for me. There's a lot of things that I see that I'll never talk about that could lead me into that hate lane quite easily but I refuse to go because they have it fully occupied. So when you think about turning on one of us, remember you're carrying their water when you enter the hate lane, okay? Okay, so this is where the story gets good as far as the polio, or paralysis we'll call it for now. On the return voyage of the USS Levithan, Many on board were stricken with the Spanish influenza. I've done two shows about that on YouTube. Look for Spanish influenza 1918. The first one, I did the history. The second one, I laid out all of the history of the, the vaccines from the very beginning. It's a very interesting history. If you want to know how we got here, think about how they got us in the first place, okay? So, he was, many on board were stricken with the Spanish influenza. Many died as a result. FDR was stricken with influenza and developed double pneumonia. His wife, Eleanor, (laughs) met him when he arrived in the United States. He was too weak to walk unattended. That's when they got him. Spanish Spanish flu, 1918. FDR got stricken with polio. Although FDR's job as Assistant Secretary of the Navy led him to advocate for readiness in anticipation of war the shoe was on the other foot during his own presidency as Europe marched to war again president roosevelt's policy of isolation <laughs> isolation meaning they they wanted the us to stay out of the war that's another way to not pronounce this word they they wanted us isolated that was that was a theory and the sales job keep us isolated from all of this okay and, once again, the United States was not fully prepared for the war that came so suddenly. It's just funny these things just, just crop up, right? Just so suddenly. Nevertheless, FDR's valuable experience managing the Navy during World War I was an asset as America again marched the war in 1941. Oh, I don't want to forget this part here. At one point in all these documentaries, Eleanor was passed off as gay, okay? They have these stories that she, back in the day, this was before the, um, I don't know, a lot of publicity and stuff. She hopped in a car with some AP reporter and traveled around the country. And just, she was already first lady then. She just hops in this car. So there were a lot of allegations that she was gay and having this affair with this AP reporter. But anyway, let me move on here. So, um His two pet projects were building a small coastal boats and plan to mine the entrances. Yeah, he was really big into that, cutting off access of German submarines to the ocean. He was the only president elected office in four times and through two of the greatest crises of the 20th century. Funny how he was on the scene for these things, right? The Great Depression and the World War II. There were comments. I believe that these have a lot of merit, but you will have to think for yourself. This quote is, If FDR had spent as much on the New Deal in 1933 as he did in the war in 1943, it would have ended the Depression by creating jobs, demand, and economic growth. The Depression's misery helped propel the German people to put the Nazis and Hitler in power. So, good guy, right? So let me lead you, I, I always find things of that time to be interesting, okay? Let me read you some political quotes from that time to kind of give you the flavor from like the 1900s to when Hoover took over. 1900, William McKinley' slogan was, A full dinner pail. 1916, Woodrow Wilson. He kept us out of war. 1920, Warren G. Harding. His slogan was, return to normalcy. 1920, he had another one. I don't understand this one. It was Cox, C-O-X, and cocktails. (laughs) That I don't know what that means. 1924 Calvin Clu- Coolidge his campaign was keep cool with coolidge 1928 Herbert Hoover a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage yeah happy times are here again so anyway so yeah this is where um it was happy days are here again it was a 1932 slogan by democratic presidential franklin d roosevelt we're turning the corner, a 1932 campaign slogan. It was right after the Great Depression. So, it was the defeat of the New Deal and the reckless spending was one campaign. Let's get another deck was another campaign. Yeah, they they really had some crazy um, crazy campaigns through here. So, you can go and look all of them up. But anyway, so here's where it gets interesting as far as the song Happy Days are Here Again. So... This is their story, okay. The song came out of the album in Chasing Rainbows. Seems like a big rainbow chase to me. The song was recorded by Leo Reisman and his orchestra with vocals by Lon Levine. Sounds like a lot of Jewish names to me. In November 1929 and was featured in the 1930 film Chasing Rainbows. The song concluded the picture in what film's historian... Edwin Bradley described as a pull out all the stops, <laughs> Technicolor finale. So, the song is usually remembered as a campaign song for FDR, successful 1932 presidential campaign. It is really a peppy song. You need to listen to the very end of this show because it really gets you moving. And see, this is why I keep mentioning. All this repetitiveness, okay? Those little jingles, the songs, the repetitive words. So anyway, so pay attention to it. It Kind of makes you feel like just hopping up and grabbing somebody and getting out on that dance floor. Happy days are here again as we're being led into the biggest death trap of our entire lives. So according to Time Magazine, this song gained prominence after a spontaneous decision. (laughs) I'll try to be serious during this. I swear I will. There was a spontaneous decision by Roosevelt's advisors to play it at the 1932 Democratic National Convention after a dirge-like version of Anchors Away, which was Roosevelt's favorite song, was repeated over and over again without enthusiasm, prompting a participant to shout out, for God's sake, have them them play something else, (laughs) which caused the band to stop playing the song. And to play the new song, which drew cheers and applause and went on to become the Democratic Party unofficial theme song for years to come. The song is also associated with the repeal of Prohibition, which occurred slowly a- shortly after Roosevelt's election. He was there in a lot of key times, right? Which there were signs saying, happy days are beer again, and so on. B-E-R, beer. Okay. Um... Somebody described the song as a true saloon standard and has been sung by virtually every interpreter since the 40s. And it's a pop version of Odd Aud- Lang Sign." As of 2006, 76 commercially released albums, including versions of the song. The song has appeared in over 80 films, Including many from the 1930s, you think this song might have influenced a little bit? Happy days are here again. Another popular recording was made by popular by Barbara Streisand, 33 years after the song's first release. While traditionally sung at a brisk pace, Streisand's performance is notable for its slow and expressive rendition. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, (laughs) I don't know what to say. Listen for the song at the end. Okay. I think that that song is a major factor in our repetitive programming during this era, but you have to listen to it and see for yourself. I can't even walk and it made me feel like getting up and dancing. So (laughs) just listen and see. So it was all about helping us let's talk a little bit about this new deal. Yeah, it was a new deal for the rich, right? Because I don't think much. Anyway, so you'll have to draw your own conclusions. I'm just going to tell you what's going on here. (laughs) It seems like I I see a lot of pretty distinct patterns here, but that's just me. The new deal was a series of large-scale relief programs and reforms FDR implemented to counteract the economic effects of the Great Depression. See how you create a crisis and then you rush into fixes and become the hero in the story? Works every time. The New Deal advocated government spending as a key economic driver. Government spending, but government spending for what? Into the pockets of the rich? The New Deal plays a significant role in countering the Great Depression and revitalizing. Okay. FDR's plan revealed just how vital the government's role is in the management of the nation's economy. And I might add the nation's people, right? So I'm going to buzz through some of these first deals. There there were four of them, of course. There had to be four, right? Okay, first New Deal. Roosevelt was inaugurated March fourth, 1933. In his first 100 days in office... FDR pushed Congress to pass 15 new agencies and laws. Together, they created capitalism with safety nets and subsidies, according to this historian. Okay, Emergency Banking Act, March 9th. FDR closed all banks as soon as he was inaugurated to stop bank runs. You think they're not going to stop him again? Yeah, okay. It was enacted at great speed. Listen, when you're going to pull off a great heist, do you plan it when everybody's watching? No, you plan it when everybody's looking over there, right? A special session of Congress passed the bill in seven and a half hours. This act allowed banks to reopen once examiners found them to be financially secure. 5,000 banks reopened in the next three days. They learned from this because during the Depression, I think it was about... 30% 30% of the banks failed, and that was sad for them. So they made sure that in the future, those banks would not fail. So if you notice now, the banks always get bailed out. The banks always win, just like in, in gambling, they tell you the house always wins. In this case, the psychopaths always win. So let me get moving on here. Okay, so yeah, so the banks, clamped down the banks, okay? That was like day, he was in March 4th, March 9th close all the banks, okay? I bet nobody saw that deal coming 5 days later. So, that's the fun they get. They signal what they're going to do and then the sharp stab to the deck. Okay, he did a governor government economic act March 20th. He did another thing, March 22nd, beer wine revenue act. It legalized the sale of beer and wine and taxed alcohol sales, raising federal revenue. The Beer-Wine Revenue Act was followed by the passage of the 21st Amendment, which effectively ended prohibition. I think prohibition was about learning how to kill people with fake booze, but I have a lot of opinions about things I'll probably never get to. But anyway, so, I mean, they did pump a lot of poison into people because people wanted to drink, so they sold them poison instead. So, I don't know, probably something there, but... Probably won't ever get there. But anyway, so he was very busy. March 22nd, he had that booze under control and the money coming in from that. So he did the Civilian Conservation Act on April 5th. That stopped a run on precious metal. Oh, wait a minute. I I skipped ahead here. (laughs) The Civilian Conservation Court was to put people out to work in parks and stuff, okay? The interesting one here that I skipped to was the Abandonment of Gold Standard. So tune your little ears in hell here right now. What do you hear all over the Gypsy Run YouTube? Everybody's trying to sell you gold, right? Everybody's saying, well, I, 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 I don't have any belief in the value of gold or diamonds, but this will be up for you to decide, okay? Is gold your best move? So what he did when he interacted with the gold deal On April the 20th, so he was in office, what, five weeks? FDR stopped a run on the precious metal. He ordered everyone to exchange all gold for dollars. So, yeah, he had everybody turn in their gold and made a run on the metals. So believe what you want about what's coming up next. They're gonna make a run on the Bitcoin. Anything they've got out there, they can. They can. They. Ca- There's a term called clawing back in legal terms. Okay, clawing back means you go and grab back money that was gotten by ill-gotten goods. So, they're real good about clawing money back. These people are. So, they give us money. They claw it back by selling us crap. Okay, that's what clawing back means. So yeah. So uh, then he did the um, agriculture. Um, oh, the Federal Emergency Relief Act. A whole bunch of jobs in agriculture, the arts, construction, education. Then he did another agricultural act, subsidized farmers to reduce crops. In other words, get people to control crop outages. It doubled crop prices by 1937. It was overturned by the Supreme Court in 1936 because it taxed processors but gave funds to farmers. But anyway, it was just, everything's always been screwed about the farmers. Um, Emergency Farm Mortgage Act. This act provided loans to save farmers from foreclosures. Here's the Rescue Act, right? You go and screw with them. You pound them into the ground, and then you come in and help them. Well, those loans probably didn't help anybody but gave their claws into these people's family-owned farms. So he also did the Tennessee Valley Authority Act in May of 1918. Now, remember, he only got into office on March the 4th, okay? We're at May the 18th. The program established a federal corporation that built power stations, in the Tennessee Valley, the poorest area of the nation. He did the Securities Act May twenty-seventh. It required corporations to provide information to investors before issuing stock. <laughs> June the fifth, he did the aberration of gold payment clause the government no longer had to repay dollars with gold i believe that was when they entered the fiat money was it fiat money no fiat money's only been in existence for the last 50 years so anyway so then he also introduced always all these helpful things i always have to tell you evil has to come package as help. He also did the Homeowners' Refinancing Act. This established the Homeowners' Loan Corporation that refinanced mortgages to prevent foreclosures. Just funny now, isn't there? Everybody's getting their houses foreclosed on now. Hmm, funny how this all worked. It also provided additional capital to mortgage lenders. Mortgage lenders, okay? And when it closed in 1935, it refinanced a million homes. So... Then in June, he did something. Oh, he did Glass-Steagall and Banking Act in June of 16. Remember, that's two months later, right? Glass-Steagall is one of the most important banking acts, okay? This law separated investment banking firms from retail banking. It prevented retail banks from using depositors' funds for risky developments or risky investments. So supposedly... This law prevented banks from using your money for risky investments. Do you think it's still an act now? It gave the regulation of retail banks to the Federal Reserve, the Feds, prohibited bank sales of securities, and created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC. The act was repealed in 1999. So yeah, he set up that to try to separate the banks from their, from our money and our pockets. And gee, it got repealed, right? So yeah, it got repealed, and so now it's just we're just in a complete free fall. In uh, 1999, then we had 2008. Now we're, <clears throat> here we are right now. So if you want to know more about it, if you find out more about it, let me know. As far as I'm going to go right now, because there's obviously some pretty clear patterns, at least to me, at least here, from what he was doing back then getting those banks because if the banks were overturned in 1999 of the Glass-Steagall thing then w- what was 2008 about <laughs> so, just trying to use a little logic here okay so he also National Industry Recovery Act June 16th guy kind of makes me out of breath this labor this labor and consumer law set up the P- public works administration to create public works jobs like San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge and New York City's Triborne Bridge. This law also created the National Recovery Administration. It outlawed child labor, established a minimum wage of $1.25, I won't even get get crazy about this whole minimum wage thing, and limited the worker workday to eight hours. They always leave out the loopholes of all these laws, right? It gave trade unions the legal right to bargain with employers. Enter the mafia. It was declared unconstitutional in 1935. Well, goodbye. They tried. So, Emergency Railroad Transportation Act, June 16th. This piece of legislation attempted to coordinate the national railway systems. He also did... November the 9th, Civil Works Administration created thousands of construction jobs to put people to work. Congress ended it on March 1934. So, in 1934, conservative businessmen criticized the New Deal for being too socialistic. What, what word do you hear now? Socialistic, AOC, that whole branch. Otherwise, Others like Louisiana politician Huey Long said it didn't do enough for the poor. Despite their criticism, FDR pushed for these additional programs. Okay. This uh, um, Gold Reserve Act, January 30th. FDR prohibited private gold ownership. He increased the price of gold to $35 per ounce. Up from twenty dollars and sixty-seven cents per ounce, where it had been for a hundred years, that almost doubled the value of gold held in Fort Knox from four thousand thirty-three billion to seven thousand three hundred forty-eight billion, making the United States the largest owner of gold. Now, that alone—that alone, the United States, the world's largest owner of gold—is <laughs> a pretty big red flag to me. <laughs> That alone should stand out to all of us right here, okay? So, we're still on this other part. National Housing Act, June 27th. This allowed the Federal Housing Administration federal insurance for mortgages. All this insurance, right? So, Securities Exchange Act um, regulates the stock market. Federal Communications Act. The act consolidated all federal regulations of telephone, telegraph, and radio communications under the Federal Communications Act, also known as the FCC. That all changed under Clinton. Clinton came in and, um, I don't know, there had been like, I don't know, a whole bunch of people running the communications, TVs, all that kind of stuff. And Clinton came in and narrowed it down to just a couple of them. So, let see. There was a second New Deal program. In 19, you can see why I'm going to do the Jewish part in the next part, because we have to know how this happened to figure out how we got here. So we have been pretty well tricked. So they, the second New Deal, um, they, they struck down some things, and they focused on providing more services for the poor, the unemployed, and farmers. FDR spoke about helping the millions who never had a chance. Men at starvation wages, women in sweatshops, children at knitting looms. What a good guy, right? So he did all this stuff. He did the Soil Conservation Act. He did this resettlement thing that trained farmers and to they, they bought ten million acres of submarginal farmland and paid farmers to convert it. Oh, then they did the third wheel. Oh, I don't want to skip past this one. (laughs) Second part of the New Deal, Social Security Act. The law created the Social Security Trust Fund, the administration to provide income for the elderly, the blind, the disabled, and children in low-income households. And ask yourself, how has that all been managed? So moving right along, and we're getting kind of close here, so just hang in there. Um, The third New Deal program. uh, You see, this stuff had to have all been cooked up from the beginning, right? Because how do you get in office and have all this going on in the first year or two, right? So, in 1937, FDR rolled out the third New Deal. Concerned about budget deficits, he did not fund it as much as the previous two. (laughs) So, he... he had a United States Housing Act. It funded state-run public housing projects. We see how those have all turned into a moving and walking disaster. Uh, he built some dam. He did the farm tenancy thing, helped the farmers out, gave some farmers some money to relocate them, cut the New Deal. So he did a lot of things. You'll have to look at this. I'm getting a little worn out by this guy. But anyway, he abolished the Mark to Mark Accounting. And sub believe... It forced many banks out of business. <laughs> Probably the ones he didn't have his hand in the pocket of, right? So what happened, he'd established the mark-to-mark accounting. And what this means is that it was to force many banks out of business. The rule forced banks to write down their real estate as values fell. I guess, stop the lies, I guess. FDR's new rule allowed them to keep these assets on their books at historical prices. So this is this just shows that the early rigging of the books, okay. I'm not gonna get into it, but you know, they have they don't raise the cost of living for social security because they have how they calculate the numbers rigged. And you know, if you want to go look into it, let me know. But I've looked into it. I'm just giving you my overview that the numbers are rigged. Um, if you think otherwise, then show me why I'm wrong. Some experts believe that forest many banks, and then he um he um, in 1939 this is a big point FDR launched the Federal Security Agency. It administered social security, federal education funding, and food and drug safety, and then Congress abolished it in 1953. Everything see what happens is one guy gets something in and the other guy gets it out, but whatever. So the New Deal works, supposedly. After FDR had launched the first New Deal, the economy grew 10.8% in 1934. When the second New Deal rolled out, the economy increased by 8.9% in 1935 and 12.9% in 1936. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to keep up with the lies some days. Anyway, so some say the New Deal didn't work because the Depression lasted for 10 years. They point out that defense spending on World War II was the only thing that ended the Great Depression. Let that sink in. But if FDR had spent the same amount on the New Deal as he did on war, it would have ended the Depression. So, anyway, so, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, I could go on for the next week about every detail about this stuff, but I'm not going to. So, anyway, so, yeah, he. Um, let's get to the stock market crash. <laughs> Um, how I, I you know I I took history so many years ago that I'm only repeating this to you because I had to look it up again myself. So we had the you know we had the World War One, then we had World War Two, and between that we had the Great Depression. We had the stock market crash. We had all that stuff going on. Okay, so it it actually got kicked off in 1929. Okay, Hoover became president. The stock market crash was in October, and that kicked off the Great Depression. Remember, the stock market crash was engineered by them, of course. So, anyway, so yeah, so Hoover, the stock market crash, depression. So then, they started passing tariffs to protect jobs. They raised the rate on the debt, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so the crash happened in 1929. FDR took office in 1933. So that's when he immediately launched all of those programs. So a lot is really packed into that era. I mean, just a lot. But let's get to the part where we enter the war here. Now that we've gotten through all of this stuff, he crammed down everybody's throats, right? So in 1939, the Dust Bowl drought ended. The United States spent up to spent to build up to the military as Europe entered World War II. The expenditures, expenditures excuse me, added three billion to debt. The government grew eight percent. Unemployment fell. Okay, so the government in 1940 started to draft, and um, they were assisting Great Britain by sending them weapons. Added three more billion to the debt. And anyway, when he began his third term in 1941, this is very key here, because up until then, the sentiment for entering World War II, which was already going on, was not there. So how did they get the sentiment to term and get the U.S. public to agree that this war was a good way to spend money and send our young people to? Well... He began his third term in 1941. Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in December. The United States entered World War II. Spending eliminated the Depression and added $6 billion to debt. The economy grew and unemployment fell. So... War added, they kept adding billions of dollars of debt, Um, gross domestic product growth with unemployment fell. So things were looking pretty good, right? Even though they're spending all this money on the war, people were all having jobs. So anyhow, so yeah, so he um, got all that going during the war and um, all in all, I would say that FDR is a pretty evil guy. Um, So anyway, so I'll get back more on this Jew thing tomorrow. And why am I going to talk about him being a Jew? Well, because I would be surprised if there was was a single U.S. Um, president that wasn't a Jew, okay? Because, remember, they cooked up this country here. I believe the strongest arm of these people came out of probably, I don't know, Andy's been just invaluable in doing this research. I think that, and she'll probably have more to add that I'll include tomorrow or in a day or so when I talk about the Jews, but because we've been just burning through the paperwork on this. So we'll be clarifying more about the Jews. We'll be clarifying more about what Andy's been up to. And uh, I think that every president has been a Jew. I think they cooked up this country. And they wouldn't cook up this country and let those jobs at the top go to just anybody. It would go to them. So we are looking at the heads of the snakes of these deals, okay? So why would I say that he was a Jew? Well, I think they all were. And um, we're not going to get into every one of their genealogy. We have to make some analysis here. So World War II was a key turning point for the Jews, if you think about it. It was a big stage, world stage time. And I think that's when the evilest group of them grabbed power is likely how it all played out. They got to set up here, be the big shots of the world, get that fiat money going, all set for action. And here we are today. What triggered this all off was this, okay? And I will have a lot more to say about this in the next day or two. So, this came out of a quote. And when I sent this to Andy, here's what I said to her. I said, holy crap, here is the Jew plot. Okay, what it was that it said, Vice President Henry Wallace, who noted the conversation in his diary, said, Roosevelt spoke approvingly of a plan recommended by geographer and john hopkins university president isaac bauman to spread the jews thin all over the world okay to spread the jews thin all over the world was the plot so i'll leave that with you to think about it please stick around for this song goodbye for now talk to you about the other part of this as soon as we can just be safe out there (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.